Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com. Chapter 2. Freedom at last, I announced to no one in particular, as I jumped out of the warm, modest four-door sedan and took off. The drive to Ocean Grove from Ballarat was just a little over an hour. I was grateful to escape out of the car into the fresh salt air. Arriving in the grove felt like a release from issues that had piled up over that year, and the December heat made the ocean too inviting to stick around and help out. We ended up at the same caravan park each year in a one-room tent, each of us with our own blown-up mattresses and sleeping bag. I was 16 years old and my plans for a long summer of partying began before I arrived. I barely assisted in setting up our camping site before turning away from my family to the call of liberty beckoning from the crashing waves. I knew my way to the front beach, having carved a path there over many days in the past visiting this same spot. As the warm, fine sand gave way a little under my feet, I thought eagerly about hooking up with some of the mates I had met the previous summer. I loved the beach. There was something about standing barefoot with the glare of the sun reflecting off the white sand and a never-ending roll of waves, predictable yet each one dancing to its own beat, and then to stare out at the vast expanse that seemingly had no end. I loved the water too. It always made me feel small, yet it released me from the feelings of entanglement and entrapment that life seemed to weave. I spent hours at the beach. Sunburn and running through the waves were for me key ingredients of every summer. Nevertheless, it was not long before the late nights, drinking and chasing girls began to dominate my focus. I lived from moment to moment. I avoided the cabin as much as possible because whenever I saw mum it was the same thing. She would tell me off and try to remind me of my responsibilities. I wasn't up for that, so instead I'd hang out at my best mate's holiday place. Time seemed to fly by so fast. The days all rolled into weeks too quickly. One morning, halfway through the summer break, I awoke hot in a stuffy tent. I did not bother grabbing my watch. I already knew it was well into the day. Before being fully awake, I heard the sound that had been nagging in my ear the day before. Mum's irritating voice. My nerves were on edge. My mum had a way of pushing my buttons. The next decision was one that I made with little real thought. I knew I just had to get out of there. There was a freedom with my mates and only feelings of being trapped in the cabin. Mum was nagging about all the jobs I was meant to be doing. My lack of serious response made Mum more and more frustrated. But I didn't care. I walked out of the cabin, giving off the worst attitude vibe that I could. I just wasn't willing to conform to Mum's agenda. If you don't come home before midnight, don't come home at all, Mum warned. That suited me just fine. I figured I wouldn't come home at all. I was confident that something would be worked out. Being bossed around against my will was something I did not want. I didn't really try to rebel. It's just what seemed to happen. Actually, often over the years, I felt more like I was inadequate at whatever it was I was trying to do. The feelings of inadequacy were masked once I'd learned to fight. Having gained confidence, I could push all the negative feelings down deep where they were harder to connect with. The next two weeks were fun and adventurous as I completely avoided seeing mum. I knew I could bludge off my mate Daryl's mum, because she kind of felt sorry for me. Most of my time was spent at the beach or hanging out down at the pinball parlour in Ocean Grove. It was a couple of weeks after storming out of the cabin that a big shock awaited me. 
The day started like any other, sleeping in after going to bed only hours before dawn, then hanging out with mates on the street. I was completely caught off guard to see my hot and bothered father calling out my name. Mum had left and gone back to Ballarat, not knowing where I was. It made me feel squirmy on the inside knowing Mum had left without me. I wondered if she had even cared that I was missing. But obviously she had called Dad, who had come straight down to pick me up. On finding me, Dad grumbled and commanded, Grab your gear quickly, I'm taking you with me, now. It was a tone that I knew not to mess with. Dad was a busy man and did not at all enjoy being messed around. He knew I had put Mum through hell. I had not considered how my actions and attitudes affected my family. I did not really care about anyone but me. My independence had been instantly ripped from me. The few belongings I had were gathered up and the two of us bundled into the little Triumph convertible and drove to a Ballarat. As I sat in Dad's car, I'd seen my sweaty legs and hands stuck to the vinyl seats as my nerves struggled to remain under control. Dad had decided that I was just drifting, had no direction, and needed a firmer hand to guide me. As the country road approached the outskirts of Ballarat, Dad proposed that I move in with him. The idea of having a father around full-time seemed great, and it meant getting away from Mum's nagging, and from my sister Carolyn, who I did not have much to do with. I eagerly agreed to move in a state, up to Wollongong where Dad had been living, with his new wife and my two stepsisters for the past year. I quickly settled into life at Wollongong. Dad took me into his new family. Legally, I was old enough to work and had no thoughts of going to school, although I was in no hurry to jump into employment. Dad was pretty keen for his son to find something meaningful in his life. I was lost and directionless, and Dad was not having me around the house with nothing to do, so the plan was to find a job. I didn't mind Dad's questioning about likes and dreams. I hadn't thought much about it, and it was kind of nice having him interested enough to ask. Dad was a little surprised when I recalled how much I'd enjoyed doing a week's work experience in a garage back in Ballarat. That was enough information for Dad, who pulled some strings and quickly arranged for me to work at a service station owned by an associate of his, a German guy called Richard. The following Monday I began my new job as the workshop gopher. Richard was what they call a shonky dealer, making a handsome profit out of dubious repairs. In New South Wales, cars must pass regular roadworthy testing and people would bring their car to Richard for their annual green slip. I watched and listened. I watched and listened as Richard would convince customers that their cars needed all kinds of work when all that was needed was perhaps a wheel balance or an alignment. Richard would clean up old parts and put them back on, then charge for new ones. One of my first jobs was to put a car on the hoist, take some petrol and clean up all the steering components to make them look new. It felt bad to rip people off, but I needed the job. I felt powerless to say or do anything. I worked hard, but often felt like a second-rate person. The guys in the workshop called me Junior, and I was treated like a naughty kid who was to blame for everything. I was the lowest in the workshop pecking order. Sam was the mechanic who worked for Richard. He was a big Yugoslav guy, normally easygoing, but with a short fuse. I was careful not to do anything to annoy him. It was not long before I found myself hating work and the garage. I hated Richard too. I resented the fact that Richard was making a fortune dishonestly and yet paying me a pittance. I figured I couldn't get even, so I helped myself to the till. I would walk into the retail area of the shop where Richard sold drinks and snacks along with basic service station items. 
I would make sure Richard was nowhere around, then pretend to buy a can of coke, but steal more money than I put in when the till was opened. This left me feeling guilty, as I was well aware that stealing was wrong, but believed it to be justified. What goes around comes around, I often thought. I never wondered it would come around to me, or stop to think about how stealing from a thief could possibly make things right. It never occurred to me that stealing from Richard made me his partner in crime. The customers were the ones losing, and by stealing, it was me who was profiteering along with Richard. Between my wages and the money I stole, I had a good income. I couldn't afford to think too hard about my actions because I enjoyed my spoils. While I had a job to keep me busy during the week, I had no friends in Wollongong. I was bored and just hung around the house when I wasn't at work. Dad could see that I was pretty much alone, so he decided to help me out by introducing me to some contacts he had. Dad knew that I liked the beach, so he took me to meet Daniel, a young surfy who worked for him as a technician. What he didn't realise was that Daniel belonged to a tribe of hardcore surfers who were to initiate me into a new and dangerous world. To say I was grateful to be living near the water again would be an understatement. I loved the beach and Wollongong had some great ones. Dad arranged for Daniel to take me out surfing. I lacked confidence with surfing but was keen to give it a go. Learning to surf was hard work, but in the waves I felt free. As the day wore on, the surf went flat and the surfers were left bobbing around in the low swell, waiting for a set that was not going to arrive. Daniel looked up at the sky, gauged the wind, looked out to sea at the swell and decided that the surf was finished for the day. He took me back to his place that he shared with his girlfriend. Along the way, we stopped off at the bottle shop and grabbed a bottle of Southern Comfort. Not long after arriving at the house, one of Daniel's friends from Sydney dropped by carrying a large plastic bag full of dried, greenish buds he called heads. Daniel rummaged around and found a glass and metal object that looked a lot like a flower vase. I'd heard about bongs before, but I'd never seen one for real. Daniel filled it with water and placed it on the coffee table in the middle of the lounge room. Some of the older guys at school had bragged about their experiences getting stoned. I sat back, arms crossed, feeling a little scared, a little curious and very unsure. I told myself to play it cool and do as they did. So with a nervous excitement, I kept my eyes pinned on each step in the process of this new experience. Daniel went into the kitchen and returned with a pair of scissors, which he used to shred a handful of his friend's heads. He dropped them into a small bowl on the table. Then he opened the bottle of Southern Comfort, poured some into a cap and set it on the table in front of him. I watched very carefully as he took a pinch of dope, rolled it in his fingers and packed it into the small metal cone at the top of a short pipe that stuck out of the side of the bong. He struck a match, held it to the cone and drew a long, deep breath through the large opening at the top. The weed glowed bright orange in the cone and then faded as Daniel exhausted the charge in a single drag. Holding the smoke in his lungs, he downed a cap of Southern Comfort and then exhaled. All the other guys followed Daniel's lead, inhaling deeply until the cone was reduced to ash and then quickly sculling back the shot of spirits. Finally, he passed the bong to me. Pretending I was familiar with smoking pot, I took some of the shredded weed and carefully packed it into the cone. Holding a burning match to the charge, I inhaled as deeply as I could. I was swimming in a semi-delirious sea of confusion and euphoria almost immediately. Inhaling again, I finished the cone and reached for the shot of Southern Comfort. Daniel refilled the bottle cap and began to repack the pipe. 
Two more cones, lubricated by southern comfort, and I could handle no more. Collapsing back onto the couch in a daze, watching Daniel and his friend in a cloudy slow motion as they smoked and drank. After a couple of hours, I was clear-headed enough to walk, and Daniel drove me home. The danger of riding in a car driven by a guy who just smoked half a dozen cones and drank half a bottle of Southern Comfort just didn't cross my mind. Good time, Daniel grinned as I stumbled out of his car towards the door of Dad's home. Walking around the back of the house, I pushed open the back door. Dad looked up from the kitchen table to see me swaying in the doorway, staring into the room and trying to focus. He could tell I was stoned, but said little. I shuffled past him with a wave and a grunt, stumbled towards my room and collapsed on the bed. The next morning I awoke feeling sick and nursing a pounding headache. I wandered out into the kitchen, wincing with every step as each one reverberated around in my head. Dad was unsympathetic. Thought you said you weren't going to do that stuff. Dad muttered with a look of disgust. I shrugged and found myself something to eat. If Dad wanted me to straighten out, introducing me to Daniel was not his best strategy. Soon I met more of Daniel's surfy mates, and they immediately become my mates too. Every weekend we wound up smashed on a cocktail of marijuana and alcohol. While I'd been a binge drinker in Ballarat, in Wollongong things went to a whole new level. These new friends were hardcore substance abusers. Sitting in pubs and throwing back schooner after schooner of beer, seemingly unaffected. I felt driven to keep up with them, which meant I would end up completely out of my mind, needing to be helped to my feet and held upright just to get from the bar to the car. Wollongong in the late 70s was awash with dope, and we could easily buy it from a number of different suppliers. Daniel's friends would sell me a decent stash for 20 or $30, and that would keep me wasted for more than a week. It became commonplace for me to get wasted, somehow get home, and awake the next morning severely hungover. Once I was even wearing someone else's clothes. It was not unusual for me to stir in the morning with an awful feeling in the pit of my gut as I sensed I had done things the previous night that I was sure to regret. After being in Wollongong a few months, I decided to visit Mum and some of my mates who I looked forward to seeing back in Ballarat. In my own mind, I felt I was pretty cool now that I was smoking dope. I decided to take some weed back to Ballarat and to introduce my friends to its pleasures. My mates sold me a bag of dope, claiming it was high-quality head. I had learnt that heads are the tightly packed buds at the top of the cannabis plant and have a higher concentration of the drug THC than the leaves that grow further down the plant stem. The guy had already shredded the leaves, so I couldn't really tell what they were. In preparing to leave for the airport... I shoved the plastic bag full of special cargo down the front of my pants, figuring that I would be fine. On arrival at the airport, I made my way to the security screening area, where I was required to walk through a metal detector. I tried to look as relaxed and casual as possible as I strolled toward the grey arch beside the baggage x-ray machine. When I walked through the detector, an alarm sounded. I froze, and terror began to rise from the pit of my stomach. The security guard motioned for me to retreat back to the unsecured side of the detector and to empty my pockets. Grabbing a plastic tray, I shoved my hand into my pocket and, to my relief, I found a long-forgotten cherry-ripe chocolate bar, still covered in its foil wrapping. Thankfully, I dropped it into the tray and pushed it towards the x-ray machine. I desperately hoped the dope wouldn't set off the alarm again. I approached the detector with my heart pounding. Giving a weak smile to the guard, I tried not to sigh too loudly when I cleared the arch with no alarm. 
I cheerfully picked up the cherry ripe and scampered off to the gate. I was pleased to see Mum and Caroline as I arrived at Melbourne Airport. As we drove back to Ballarat, Mum peppered me with questions. I repeatedly tried to reassure her that I was doing well, had a steady job and was staying out of trouble. It did not take me long to contact my mate Damien and we arranged to spend the evening enjoying the dope I had bought. I found myself bragging about how I managed to get hold of some real premium weed and wanted to see Damien reduced to a stupor the same way I was when I first smoked pot. Not having a bong meant that we had to roll joints, alternating drags with shots of whiskey. My bragging turned out to be hollow, as the dope was only average strength, and Damien easily kept pace with me, smoking and drinking as much as I did. Trying to be the big shot with the high-grade dope from up north ended up making me look like I had been sucked in by the drug dealer and proved that I didn't know much about drugs at all. Back in Wollongong, I continued to spend weekends with Damien and his surfing mates, gradually getting further and further out of my depth. Life was quickly spinning out of control in a blur of drugs and alcohol. To be accepted in this crowd, I needed to be like them, to drink and smoke as much as they could. But they were in a different league. I was 16, skinny and inexperienced. They were grown men, seasoned drinkers and seemingly immune to the dope they smoked. They would move on to another pub and repeat the dose. But I would not make it to the next pub. A barman would find me slumped on the floor or in the toilets and organised a cab to take me home. I would stagger into the house and collapse on the bed, only to wake the next morning feeling like death. Between the wild weekends, weekday life was a chore working for the boss I despised and doing work knowing it was dishonest. One Friday, I decided that I couldn't take it anymore and told Chris that I wasn't coming back on Monday. Chris shrugged and arranged to pay me the wage he owed. I had no plans or prospects for other work, but was confident I could get something. But after my usual weekend descent into drug and alcohol-induced oblivion, Monday arrived with nothing for me to do and nowhere to go. Without the regular routine of a job, I quickly drifted into the local pinball arcade. The next day, I was back there, and for the rest of the week, I frittered the days and money away watching a silver ball bounce from pin to pin. After a couple of weeks of unemployment, Dad could see I was going nowhere. He coaxed me into seeing the careers counsellor at the government employment office. The pinball arcade and running out of money was getting boring, so I agreed. After a few minutes of chatting with the counsellor, it was obvious that I was directionless. He suggested that I consider joining the army, promising training, career prospects, travel and high pay. The counsellor assured me that military life would be the making of me. My future would be bright. In those days, joining the army was seen as a surefire way of knocking some sense into wild young men, helping them become disciplined and responsible. Before I knew it, I was signing up at an army recruiting office and organised to travel to Sydney for a battery of tests. Dad saw that I was on an express route of self-destruction and he'd been pulling some strings with an army recruiting officer he knew to get me away from Wollongong. It worked. Within eight weeks, I was gone. Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com.